Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to our weekend uh, services. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I want you to go on and be joining me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. In just a moment, uh, we're going to look at uh, a really important teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ that he gives there in Luke, chapter uh, 16, and then that'll lead a little bit later on in our service to, uh, to, the, to the sermon. I'm really grateful that you're here, if you're here in person, and then those of you who are uh, streaming along with us, we do want everybody to be on the same page and know that tonight is our last Saturday evening service, so if you're streaming live on Saturday nights, or of course those of you in the room, just know this is the retirement party for a Saturday night. It's been a great blessing and privilege to join together on Saturday evenings, but we're right around the corner from our new schedule beginning on uh, September the 13th. And just a real quick word about that, just a reminder that we are adjusting our schedule on Sunday, September the 13th. Uh, two services on Sunday mornings, one at 9 a.m. and then another at 1045. And what we're really asking is everybody, and when we say everybody, we mean everybody who's participating in services, either in person or streaming, to uh, sign up and let us know how you are going to commit to participate in, ser in services for September, October, and November. So who's going to register? Everybody is, right? So if you're going to come in person to 9 a.m., you go online or you go on the church app or you call the church office and say, we're coming at 9 a.m. If you're streaming on YouTube, you say, we're streaming on YouTube. You streaming on Facebook, we're streaming on Facebook, we're coming 1045. That just really helps us to know how to get things structured and allocate resources. We want for those of you who are streaming to have the best streaming possible. And so if we can just, for the next couple of weeks, have everybody sign up and then we'll uh, be ready to go, Lord willing, on September the 13th. Well, I can't think of many things that are more important than the subject that we're going to talk about uh, this evening. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark, and we've arrived at a section in which Jesus gives among his most detailed, descriptive, and extensive teaching on the subject of hell. And so we're going to study that tonight, uh, and I think that his a message on the subject is so important, we're actually going to take this weekend and next weekend uh, to take time to really examine what he says on this subject. Perhaps you've read a book or heard a story or seen something somewhere about someone having a what's called a near-death experience. Every now and then, a, a book will catch, capture our attention, and it'll blow up for a little while, and uh, then people will have a conversation around the book. But here's my counsel for us. Better than someone's recollection of a near-death experience, I want to trust someone who had a full-death experience and then walked out of the grave. What he has to say on the subject of death and what happens after death, I'm going to take what he says as authoritative. And anything else I happen to hear on that subject, I'm going to filter it through what he has to say. Luke 16, I asked you to turn there because here Jesus gives an account that we need to pay attention to. Luke 16, just read with me verse 14 so we understand sort of why Jesus tells this story. It says in Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now, here's one of the things I love about Jesus. Even though they've come to criticize him, even though to use the word here, they've come to ridicule him, he's going to respond with a loving warning 
to the very ones who ridicule him. In verse 19, when I trust in riches, here's a warning. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels. Well, let's remain standing for the reading of Scripture in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, will be our text for this evening in really sober and serious time and sober and serious days. God has made it that we are in a really sober and serious passage in Mark's gospel. All of it is, of course, but these words certainly fit that description. Whoever, Jesus is speaking, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better that you enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us understand these things rightly. Help us hear this warning clearly. Help us. Help me, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So my aim is to teach the Scriptures. I want to be sober. I want to be measured. And my aim is, perhaps above all things, to be clear in our teaching. We cannot have a peacetime mentality in the midst of a spiritual war. And just so we make no mistake about it, we are in a spiritual war. All your days on earth are a spiritual war. There's so much in the scripture that makes it evident, and then at the same time we find many verses telling us to rest. Right On one page you'll say, fight the good fight. And on another page you'll see rest. So is the Christian life a fight or is a rest or is it rest? Well, I believe, as I've been taught, uh, that the Christian life is a fight to rest in the right things. And so we want to rest in the teaching of Jesus. Have you ever listened to the radio riding along in the car? Uh, or may what's more uh, increasingly likely for you, you have shuffle activated on Spotify, right? And a song comes along that you don't want to hear. You change the station or you click skip. And of all the teachings of Jesus, I think his teaching on hell is skipped more than any other. But please listen. If, if we seek to humble ourselves before God and take seriously the study of Scripture, if we do not listen to his teaching on this subject, 
as Colin Smith says, there will be no place on earth where people are listening to Jesus' teaching on hell. For even among those who say they follow Jesus, this subject is increasingly avoided and overlooked. Now I want us, uh, our, my commitment to you is to teach through the scripture verse by verse, starting in chapter 1, verse 1 of a book and going all the way through. So we're not going to skip, we're not going to change the radio station, because that notion is built on a terrible assumption, and that it would be that there are things about Jesus and from his teaching that we don't need or don't need to listen to, and that, I believe, is, is false. So like most of the teachings of Jesus, the more we drill down on them, the more we realize it's our assumptions that are actually off base. So for the next two weekends, we'll study his teaching, understanding this, to really, to really understand Jesus' teaching on hell will make you more loving, not less. Will make you more eager to be a person of peace, not less. Will certainly make you more astonished and appreciative of his work on the cross, not less. And will certainly make you more prepared for the world that is to come, not less. Who is Jesus speaking to in Mark chapter 9 when he gives this warning about hell? Who is he speaking to when he says, if your hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot is causing you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to stumble, tear it out. Who is it? It's the disciples. So let's pause here and remember that this is a warning that we need to listen to. Now, you notice, here's the bookends of the section we're in, verse 34, they kept silent when Jesus asked them, what have you guys been talking about? On the way, they had argued with one another about which of them was the greatest. Now look at verse, into verse 50, be at peace with one another. So if we get the whole thing together, they enter the house at Capernaum, arguing about which of them is the greatest, and then Jesus teaches them, and at the end of it says, if you'll listen to what I just told you, that's how you can have peace with one another. So remember where the disciples are and what they've been doing. At this moment, they have been demonstrating, when Jesus warns them about hell, they've been demonstrating an allegiance not to the kingdom of Jesus, but to the kingdom of self, right? And here's how we have seen it play out. They're prayerless. Why couldn't we cast the demon out? This kind of demon only comes out by prayer. They've been argumentative with the scribes. Here's a young boy, a little boy that is oppressed by demons. So let's say it again and again and again. The spiritual forces of wickedness target little children. And they've been unable to help this child or his dad. They've been off to the side, caught up in the wrong argument at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. Can the American church hear this right now? Well, there's a great temptation for you to be swept up in the wrong argument. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the principalities, the spiritual forces of wickedness at work in the heavenly places. They're distracted. They're arguing with their perceived enemies while they're powerless in the face of their real enemies. They're even envious over who they perceive to be their competitors. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Well, it's one thing for you to be powerless against demons, but then to criticize those who are having victory. But that's what happens. It's what we're tempted to. Instead of helping, they're overlooking the very people they should be serving, 
And then to cap it all off, they're arguing among themselves which of them is the greatest. And when they step into that house, Jesus says, we're not going on like this. Sets a little child in the midst of them. Why? He says, it's better if a millstone were tied around your neck than you lead this little child away, one who believes in me. Why? Because they are saying they're followers of Jesus while they're still all about themselves. And to paraphrase what Jesus is saying a little bit, we're not going to have that. You will not take my name in vain. That's where we concluded last week is that Jesus gives them a stern warning because they, the disciples, we're talking about Peter and James and John and Andrew. They've come into a house arguing about which of them is the greatest and they're making out for this child to understand the wrong things about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives them this warning about hell. You add all this up and what's Jesus telling them? He's telling them, your souls are in danger right now. Your souls are in danger. You, you, you are claiming to be my follower. And as he say elsewhere, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? And then he gives them a warning about hell. So let's just hear this together. When we are prayerless, when we are powerless, when we are easily distracted in unending arguments, both with our perceived enemies and with one another, when we're envious of our perceived competitors, when we're overlooking the people that we should be serving, and then arguing amongst ourselves of which of us is the greatest, our souls are in danger. And Jesus doesn't say, just respond half-heartedly with that. The metaphor he uses is if your hand is reaching for the wrong thing, cut it off. If your foot's taking you in the direction of the wrong kingdom, cut it off. If you're looking around and saying, this is what it looks like to follow God and you're wrong, tear it out. Because your soul's in danger. God is going to crush all of the kingdoms of self. And only his kingdom will remain. All of us will experience either heaven or hell. No one will experience both. I wanted to initially preach all of this in one sermon, and I had four points, but what we're going to do instead is take two main points tonight and then two next Sunday as well. So here's point number one. Hell is the destiny for all who refuse to surrender to God. Hell is the destiny for all who refuse to surrender to God. We begin our service this evening uh, with the reading from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, the rich man and Lazarus. So just a few quick things. One in the world would have been perceived as successful, the other as unsuccessful. One, no doubt, had a bit of renown and popularity, while the other did not. But in light of the truth of eternity, one was prepared and one was not. Hell is for all those who refuse to surrender to God. Now, if you go back to Luke 16, here's some sober observations. He knew who Abraham was. Father Abraham. He knew how he could have avoided being there. Send them back to my brothers that they may repent. So he's got information. 
He's got understanding. But what we know about him is that his heart was firmly set on something other than loving God. And we know that because, by extension, he doesn't love his neighbor. His identity was what he lived for. We've been saying in recent days, because I think I'm seeing it straight here from Scripture, everybody has an allegiance ultimately to to something. And when your heart stops beating, what it was set on determines your eternity. See, everybody lives for something. Your identity is deeply attached to something. Now, notice what Jesus is saying. If you're attaching or looking for your identity in something other than God, what's he saying? Cut it off. Cut it off tonight. Cut your hand off. Cut your foot off. Tear your eye out. I mean, this is violent language. If you've got a friend whose influence is so strong on your life that they're taking you away from the kingdom of God and encouraging you to build the kingdom of self, cut off that relationship. Hour after hour, you're under the influence of Netflix, and it is determining what your heart is set on. Cut it off. Tear it out. Be aware of how dangerous a situation you are in. And know as you do so, you will be surrounded by a world who mocks and laughs and says that's ridiculous. Be aware of the danger. See, everybody is living and longing for something. Hell is the destiny of those who will not surrender to God. Now, as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, I want you to see that that refusal to surrender, it doesn't look the same for everybody. Now, some people do have a strong, overt, we'll talk it out loud, refusal to surrender to God. I don't believe in God. I don't believe there is a God. I'll never stand before God. The Pharisees ridicule him. The Pharisees stand against him. But some people's refusal to surrender to God looks like Peter coming alongside Jesus and putting his arm around him and say, may it never be that you will go to Jerusalem and suffer and and die. But it's refusal all the same. Coming alongside thinking that you are God's advisor. Who has ever given to God that he should repay? As the scripture says. But what is true both for the Pharisees and for Peter is that they're looking to have Jesus surrender to them. Where did that come from, by the way? That's what happened at the fall, isn't it? God's creation attempted to take him off the throne and replace him with self, didn't we? It's a mutiny, a rebellion, a revolt. We don't want you in charge of us. We want to be in charge. And we cannot underestimate how catastrophic the consequences are in the world right now when Adam and Eve in the garden reach for the status of God and to replace God as God. And hell is the destiny for all who refuse to surrender to God. All of us, all of us have inherited that from Adam and Eve. But what happens, friends, what happens when you exchange the glorious, righteous king for self-rule? Well, if you have one person who has decided that they live, along, uh, that they live, and they're in, uh, they live for themselves and they're in charge and what they say goes, and then you have another person who feels the same way, what happens? Cain and Abel happens. That's what happens. 
the days of Noah happens, that's what happens. Look around the world, that's what happens. When each individual person has rebelled against God and claimed sovereign authority, what happens when each person says, I will follow my own desires, I decide for myself what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, this is what happens. Self-centeredness happens. Discontent happens. Racism happens. Relational dysfunction happens. Competition for control happens. I'm right and you're wrong happens. Fear and anger and resentment happen. Envy happens. The fall has happened. And creation groans. You know what else happens? False hopes happen. Because what's broken is broken in here. In here. And you can run from a situation, you can run from a location, you can run from a relationship, but you know what you can't run from? You can't run from you. And you see the folly of the kingdom of self, the very thing that you need to be saved from is the same thing that you keep exalting again and again and again. And God, though he is patient, will not allow this rebellion to go on forever. Hell is the destiny for all who refuse to surrender to God. Next point for tonight is simply this. Hell is a place of punishment and exclusion. Have you heard the phrases we've read tonight? Rich man, this place of torment unquenchable fire, the worm doesn't die, cast into the fire. Hell is a place of punishment and exclusion. J.I. Packer, one of the great theologians of our days, who just passed away recently, says, as heaven will be better than anyone can dream, hell will be worse than anyone can conceive. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here in our text, Jesus is saying, again, you're teaching this child the wrong thing, what it means to follow me. I won't stand for it. I won't let you take my name in vain. You'll influence this child in the wrong way. You're teaching this child to love and serve and exalt self. What's Jesus saying? You're leading this child to hell. That's what he's saying. Again and again, as you teach him to view life as you're the greatest, exalt self. You're destroying this child. And it'd be better to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Hell is real punishment for real sins committed by real people that are recorded and remembered by the real God. We've never committed a sin that God does not know about. Matthew 10, 28, listen to Jesus Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And it's here for a moment. I want your uh, patience and attention because we want to talk about something that uh, I think is really important. and And it's this. What does it mean when Jesus says he'll destroy, God destroys body and soul in hell? Does it mean... Does that verb destroy means that there is punishment, but that punishment ceases? Does it mean that, yes, they'll go to hell, but then they'll suffer for a little while, be punished for a little while, but then that ends? This is really important 
theologically. I understand that most people in the world don't believe there is a hell. But then some people believe, yes, there is a hell, but that punishment lasts for a little bit and then there is annihilation, for example. So I want to be a careful student of God's word. What does this verb destroy mean? It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What does the word perish, what does the word destroy mean? Well, I think it's helpful if we look at a few other places in the scriptures where the word is used. And to go on and state it clearly, I do not believe that destruction has a time frame where it goes on and then it ends. And I take that from careful reading of the scripture. I think we have this notion, don't we, that yes, I understand God is holy and God is just, but does hell have to go on forever? Now, if you've got that question in particular, we'll address it some tonight, but we're going to address the hard questions of hell. That's why we're going to take two weeks. Talk about things. How could I ever enjoy heaven if I've got loved ones who aren't there? Let's talk about it. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. Matthew 9, 17. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, if it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. Question. Is Jesus saying the wine skins cease to exist? It's not what he's saying, is it? Mark 14, 3 and 5. Uh, we won't have to turn there for the sake of time, but it's when uh, the lady anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, the criticism was false, but listen to the statement. Why did you waste this perfume? Why did you destroy this perfume? Could we not have sold it and given it to the poor? Did the perfume cease to exist? No, the statement is being made. It was not uh, used for the purpose that it should be. Luke 15, when the parable of the woman with the lost coin, this coin that I had lost, this coin that had perished, this coin that was destroyed, now I've found it. Had the coin ceased to exist? No, but it had lost its function. It had lost its use. Can't go to the store and say, well, yeah, I had a coin, but I lost it. Where is it? It's not here. It's not meaning that it ceased to exist, but it can no longer be used for its function. Here's the point. When Jesus says, in hell you'll be destroyed, the point is you will no longer be able to do what you were made to do. And that goes on forever. What were you made to do? You were made to know God. You were made to exalt God. You were made to live in communion with God. When you are cast out of God's presence, you will no longer be able, you will never be able to do what you were made for. When God took the dust of the earth and breathed into it, breath of life, why not? Because you, sur- you refuse to surrender to him. You've said, God, I will be God. And God will not share his glory with another. It's not saying the soul ceases to exist. He is saying the soul can't function for the purpose for which it was made. This notion that those who go to hell would rather be in heaven is false. Why? Because what's going on in heaven? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain. I know we get in our mind a notion of heaven is I'm going to go and it'll be some family reunion. And you, you will see your loved ones there. But friends, what is your heart set on? And I want to see Jesus. The one who saved me from what we're talking about, which we'll emphasize more as we go on. I do want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, he's going to go be crucified. So let's keep that in mind as we listen to his teaching. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, that he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught us in the streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be Last, weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's a horrible description, isn't it? Gnash the teeth. Why? Why so much resentment? There's anger towards God. I want you to hear this and let this be one of those things you don't ever forget. When people are angry with God, what are they angry about? They're angry that he's God. When people are angry with God, what they're really angry with God about is that he's God. And they gnash the teeth. I want it to be about my name. The worm never dies, Jesus says that. What does that mean? It's a figure of speech or a... Um, an illustration, metaphor, I think is the word I'm looking for. That worm. It's talking about your thoughts. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. Have you ever had an argument with someone? And maybe it really got it heated. And later that day, after it was over, you replayed that argument in your mind. And then you began to wish you had the argument over. When they said this, I should have said that. And he rehearsed comebacks for statements, and you re-argue the whole argument. Has anybody ever done that? Just me? What's happening? Well, to use the phrase Jesus, the worm's not dying. Replaying it. Rehashing it. Now let me ask you this. When you do that, and you replay the whole argument, who wins the argument? I bet 100% of the time you do, don't you? Say, man, if I would have said this, I would have got then. They would have been left speechless. Hell, the worm never dies, gnashing teeth for all eternity against God, saying, he's wrong. About what? That he should have let you be God? Hey, do you, 
when we really examine this doctrine, it makes us look way down deep and ask some really serious questions. Hell is your soul set on something other than God and angry with God that that something doesn't get to be God. And you know what word I would use for that? It's unquenchable. Never stops. It's a fire that keeps burning again and again and again. And one of the reasons that hell is forever is because sinners never stop sinning. It's not like you get to hell and now all of a sudden I'm no longer a person of grumbling and complaint and self-exaltation. No, that goes on forever. Why? That's That's what your heart was in this life. And again, friends, you can come off malicious against Jesus like the Pharisees, or you can spend your whole life like Peter with his arm around Jesus and saying, well, really what I want us to do is to co, uh, be co-workers here, kind of co-regents, James and John. Can we sit one on one side and one on the, the left? We continue on in the next life what we've been in this life. Your identity goes on forever. So if your identity is you grumble and you're angry, that goes on forever. If you're lustful, it goes on forever. If you're a person with a short temper, it goes on forever. It's not going to get better. It's going to be to the point where that is your identity. Hell is a self-chosen identity other than an identity in God, and it goes on forever and ever and ever. So we need to look in our heart and say, what's, go- what's true of me? Is self my God? Do you think the world would just be better off if everybody just listened to you? If you could be in charge? And if we look way down deep, let's ask it this way. What is it that you really want God to do? What do you want God to do? Do you want him to just leave you alone? That's hell. Hell is when God eternally leaves you alone. And I I mean that in the dictionary definition of the term alone. The current rebels against God have no idea how God gracious God is being to them right now. The very air they breathe to rebel against God, He's provided for them. What is it that you want God to do? Do you want Him to forgive you of your sins? All the sins He has recorded, do you want Him to graciously cover them? All of your wanting to be God in the place of God, do you want it atoned for? Do you want it removed as far as east is from west? He will do that. You see, Jesus doesn't just teach about hell. He teaches about hell on his way to experience the punishment and the isolation that is hell. It's what he's going to do at Calvary. I know we've said it before, but I want you to know again, he is not in agony in Gethsemane worried about the nails, worried about the crown of thorns. Jesus is the only one who can quench the fire. You need to know this. Why is it that he can go to the cross and he can suffer the agony and that fire can be quenched? Because he doesn't have any sin of his own. 
He's the righteous one who says, I'll take your sin, I'll take it instead of you, your, your soul, sin, I will atone for. I love Psalm 22. Go read Psalm 22 tonight. You know what one of the statements is? The prophetic psalm of David talking about the cross that happens a thousand years after the psalm is written. One of the statements is Jesus saying prophetically, and then this happening to him at the cross, I am a worm and not a man. I'm going to die in your place. It's only at the cross where transformation is possible. Because what's wrong with you and me? It's in here. The greed is in here. The jealousy is in here. The self-exaltation is in here. So be careful of the false hopes that tell you again and again and again the problem is somewhere out there. It's, it's in here. Your soul is either set on the cross of Jesus Christ where your sins are atoned for and the fire is quenched or your heart is set on something that's going to drag you into hell where the fire will never be quenched. Now, how do you know what your heart is set on? How do you know what your heart is set on? Have you ever had an argument, a disagreement with someone, and when you replay it in your mind, you thought to yourself, I wish I had that to do over again. And if I did, I would wash their feet. I would serve them. Even if they were wrong, I'll do whatever I need to do to make it right. Do you know who said that? That's the that's heart of Jesus. Jesus endures hell at Calvary to rescue us from hell. He can bear the wrath of your sin because he doesn't have any of his own. The punishment we hear in the scripture, let's listen to the law and the prophets. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And so your heart either says, under the Father, thy will be done. Or you live your whole life saying, my will be done. And whatever your heart is set on, when you step into eternity, you continue with that perspective. In conclusion for tonight, we often hear it said, how could a loving God send people to hell? Ever heard that question? Get that objection? Most of us have thought it ourselves, haven't we? And if God's really loving, how could he send people to hell? Our God most clearly demonstrates his love for us by enduring hell so that we don't have to. Now, i just offer you this question, this follow-up question. Oftentimes in our culture, a helpful practice is just ask a follow-up question to this statement that's put out there. So if God, if you, if you ever hear, how could a loving God send people to hell? Ask this follow-up question. If that's true, what has it ever cost that God to love you? And a better question would be, that theoretical God who's really the God of our image and making, why has he left us here? I mean, if we're all going to heaven, why are we still here? Where two hurricanes at once come to the Gulf Coast, where COVID-19 exists, where cancer exists. I mean, if he's so loving and we're all going to heaven, why didn't he just take us? 
He's patient towards you, not desiring that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. What does it cost our God to love us? A Christian response is, it costs him his son. He who did not withhold his only begotten son from us, how will he not graciously give us all things? For God so loved the world, here's what it cost him, that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. For the world is fallen, for we have rebelled against him. For we, the creation, have sought to replace the creator as king. And his response has been, instead of eradicating us, sending his son to us. What do you really want God to do? What do you really want God to do? In grace tonight, would we be able to say, what more could God do for us than what he has done for us in Christ Jesus? See, no one who could ever replace God as God would ever demonstrate the love and grace the one true God has given us in Christ Jesus. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, he's saying this to Peter, to James, to John, to Judas. Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, inside, and be at peace with one another. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. Have a time of invitation and response. What do you really want God to do for you? If you really want, in the core of your heart, for God to build your kingdom, in graciousness, I want to tell you, He will not do that. Because He is so much better than that. What He will do is though you have rebelled against him and sought to replace him, he will take that punishment on himself.